Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. My guest today is an award-winning architect based in Sydney who specializes in the design of children-orientated community environments. She has published a ton of research and spoken on stages across the globe about children-friendly cities and how to build environments that can contribute to the health and well-being of children. So it's no surprise I thought this guest would be amazing for your listening and your own personal development. She investigates the guidelines and policies implemented in Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, Canada and the UK. And based research has found founded a think tank called Cities for Play, which aims to inspire and promote strategies for playful cities. Today, we're talking about designing for and appreciating the children experience, cultural barriers, free range childhood, the play ranges, which I'm excited about, and a whole lot more. Please welcome to the studio, Natalia Krushak. Yay! (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure having you. Your work and um, putting together the Designing Child-Friendly Cities High-Density Neighbourhoods is phenomenal and I'd love to get to know the story behind all of this amazing work you put together. Um, there's a downloadable from through the Churchill Trust. Um, you can download this booklet with all the information. The notes will be in the show notes. So... Let's start where we start with all guests, get an insight to you where it all began and where did you play as a child? It's a really great question. I always love being asked this question because it just brings back so many um, joyful memories for me. But it's actually, um, and I'm sure it's the case for many others, for many listeners, um, it's really the in-between wild spaces um, that I tended to play in the most as a child. Um, And it's quite funny now as an adult and also as a designer, I sort of realised that perhaps these were the spaces that make adults most anxious. They're sort of the chaotic spaces, the slightly um, less organised spaces, which had so much play value for kids because they were the ones that, you know, we weren't afraid to mess up. It might have been the overgrown patch of shrubbery or the hilly sand dunes, Um, whatever it was, it was a space that allowed us to really have the freedom to explore it, to manipulate it, um, and to to really engage in that sort of uh, self-directed play that was so valuable. Now, I appreciate more and more now as an adult how important those sorts of spaces really are. And when you put your research lens on it, and based on these cities across the world, what is it that drew us to those spaces from your finding in your research? I think, um, I mean, I had a, the, the, the real fortune as a child to live in many different cities. My parents were, were very adventurous. Um, and so they lived in many different cities and many different places. And so I had the experience um, to, to, to live in different environments and as a child really experience various play spaces, various uh, communities and neighbourhoods and what effect um, that had for me as a child. And now as an adult, as a designer, as a researcher in this field, um, I'm starting to really unpick the, the benefits that these sorts of in-between um, and, and less more chaotic spaces had on me as a child. I think it's really the ability to manipulate the space, which was really critical for us as children. the the ability to uh, feel like we had control over those sorts of environments um, and and have ownership over these environments meant that then as children, we were able to take control over them or really have ownership over them because no one else would be be looking after these spaces. So they sort of became our own spaces, which was really, really valuable. Um, And really, I I realised just how important um, it is to, to have those sorts of 
in between um, spaces, not just uh, for kids, but there's actually quite interesting research around um, how these sorts of spaces are really great for, for girls in particular. Um, there's some research from UNSW which shows that um, these hidden nooks and crannies, spaces such as under staircases or in between uh, spaces that are, are really protected, isolated, these are spaces that young girls tend to um, be drawn to quite a bit compared to the larger fields and ovals that um, boys tend to, tend to be drawn to. Um, but the thing is that often these spaces are seen as out of bounds, they're seen slightly less safe, um, and so often they're, they're regulated so that kids can't, can't um, sort of use these spaces. So I think it's really valuable to really think back to your own childhood types of places that you, you've played in um, and understand why we might have certain fears as adults um, which limit the use of, of these extremely valuable play opportunities for kids. And when it comes to girls gravitating towards those areas, is that due to their maturity and gravitation towards more of the social interaction, social understandings? Is that why they're moving exactly. towards those spaces, opposed to the boys that want the blunter tools? And Yeah, absolutely. I think it's different um, types of play. And obviously it's not just girls, but it might be also um, some, some boys will appear to, to those types of plays, the, the pretend play, the social play, the imaginative types of play. So under a staircase, you might be able to create a makeshift puppy house that becomes a home that, that you start to play with. Um, those are the, the sorts of um, the, the play types. Uh, that girls tend to be drawn to versus the more active types of play. So I think that diversity of play is really critical uh, when providing um, different diversity of play spaces within our cities to understand that you're not just providing for active play, you're actually providing for imaginative play, for creative play, for make-believe play, all sorts of other play opportunities also. How did your journey into play begin? What was the play cue, to use a play work term, like from school playing in those forgotten spaces, the place beyond the fence, to being involved in architecture and specifically designing these neighbourhoods for children? Mm. I think um, definitely the fact that I lived in many different places had a big effect on me as a child um, and I started recognising um, how much of, of these experiences were um, because of the way in which the environment was designed. So when I started to study to become an architect, I started thinking about the fact that we very, very rarely consider the needs of children when we're designing cities, when we're designing buildings, and even more so rarely do we ask the opinion of children um, about how they spaces, what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, anything to do with designing for children is very much created by adults for children and a lot of perceptions about how children use space, how they should be using space is then applied onto these spaces. So I started questioning why it is um, that we don't respect children in that way when it comes to designing spaces for them, to ask their opinion and to really investigate what playability really means. So I've always been fascinated by this question um, and I've been fortunate enough to, uh, to undergo a lot of different types of research to explore this topic further um, and more, most recently was the Churchill Fellowship which allowed me to travel around the world exploring the cities that are taking this on seriously, that are taking on this topic of designing cities for children as a policy issue, um, as a government sort of um, responsibility uh, for not just engaging with children, but also for really thinking about the needs of children in the way in which design space, in the way in which we design spaces. I mean, the amount of um, you know meetings that I have to sit through with developers, where everyone's so surprised when you bring up this this question of, well, where where do the children play? How will the children experience the space? Can we engage with children during this, this process? It's such a surprise always. Um, and I hope to, to change that so that it's not, not something that happens once in a while, but it's something that has to happen as part of design processes. And it is something that's just seamlessly embedded in the design of planning of our cities. And we're fulfilling the child's right to have a childhood as an overview. That's what it yes. comes down to. Every child has a right. Absolutely. Is it a relatively 
modern occurrence that we are starting to consider the child in design? I don't think so. I think, um, you know, the idea of, of designing for children um, is certainly not a new idea. Um, I know from my own uh, childhood, uh, we lived for a few years in a city called Columbia in the state of Missouri in America. And there we lived in a neighborhood which was designed specifically for families with children. Um, so it's certainly not a new idea, the idea of designing for families with children, the idea of designing for children. It's just that often I think we get sidetracked, um, particularly with, with multi-unit residential developments, where often these things um, you know, cost money to implement. And so the argument has to be made over and over and over again about why we should be looking at this, why we should be prioritising this, why it's in the best interest of society, why it's actually an investment um, into childhoods and into the long-term um, viability of, you know, of our cities, of the sustainability of our cities and the health and well-being of children. So it's just an argument that tends to have to happen over and over again, mm. uh, but it's certainly not a new argument. I think it's been spoken about for, for many generations. And of course, the idea of play is one that's so embedded in us as human beings. It's so integral to the development of, of children um, that it's something just completely ingrained in us. I think everybody understands the value and importance of play. It's, it's just, you know, you, you, you get it. Uh, it's just more, how do we do it? How do we make sure that as our cities become denser, they become more and more urbanised, how do we prioritise this? Um, that's, that's the tricky question, I think. Yeah, and the tricky challenge is like when we reflect on our play, we, cons we consider it a really positive experience and integral memory creator when we reflect on our childhood. But then we kind of seem to forget the normal as we become adults and it's only we need to have that constant prompt of reflection, constant prompt of reflection because everyone can relate. Like what did you want to do as a child? You wanted to play and there's a reason for that. Um, one Absolutely. thing I love about what you've mentioned time and time again is what in our chat just even now is the why, the why. And in your report you mentioned that it was all began because of that, your fascination with why certain neighbourhoods are good for children and why some are not good for children. So how did that answering that question set you on? What was the next step after that? Mm. I think, um, you know, the way in which our environment is designed um, can have an enormous effect on childhood. I think, you know, there's, there's definitely um, social reasons why, um, and policy reasons too, why, why children tend to play outdoors less now than they did in previous generations. But as a designer, I also think that design plays a huge part in this. Um, and can also play a huge part in the solution to, to encouraging more children to play outside. I think, you know, things such as direct access to outdoor play space, visibility of play spaces from balconies or from, from front doors, you know, the quality of communal spaces, um, the quality of, of play spaces and diversity of them. All of these things can, can provide invitations for children to, to play outdoors. But I think from a larger urban scale, it's also things like how children actually can use and inhabit cities um, independently and playfully. So how do they walk to school? How do they cycle to school? How do they, um, you know, how do they have opportunities to connect with nature in an ever urbanizing and densifying um, environment? How can we make sure that every child has access to play, not within 500 metres, but on their doorstep, that they open their door and they can play outside? How do we create playable neighbourhoods um, where it's sort of just infused into both the culture and the design of spaces? I think a big part of this is also the fact that for so long we have been prioritising the car over um, vehicles, or over, sorry, over pedestrians, and children have been a really, really disadvantaged from this. Both children and, and also the elderly in many ways are a lot more vulnerable in that sense. So you know, often they, they're not driving. Um, so of course, they, they're not able to get from A to B 
with a car, which means all of a sudden that they become really dependent on adults around them to be able to move around freely. And it's also safety issues. The more cars we have on the streets, the more we prioritise parking, the less and less children um, have been able to play outdoors in the way that they did in previous generations. So I think shifting that priority from designing neighbourhoods around the car, around parking, and then shifting that to prioritising how children might actually use the spaces directly outside their, their homes. I think that's a really great way to, to change the conversation and to really, in a big way, start influencing the way in which we design our neighbourhoods. And that, in turn, will, I think, really change um, children's experiences in their childhood. Yeah, and one of the unique challenges that we have in Australia, relatively similar in the fact that there's high density in the form of housing estates where everyone's jammed in. They might have their own yard, but it's only a few metres enough for a trampoline maybe. And then they're kind of like, I consider it more secluded than actually being in an apartment block where you have to move outside to engage and you can have those resources there. So how do we overcome the, this housing estate challenge? If it hasn't been designed in at the start, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think we're in Australia, we're just coming to this recognition that increasingly families with children are choosing to live in medium and high density housing, either by choice because they want to live closer to amenity, public transport, or because of affordability issues too. So in many places, cheaper to, to, to buy an apartment than a house. So there's many reasons for it, but, but the reality is that, you know, in places such as Sydney, already 28% of apartment residents are families with children. And this is predicted to increase to 32% in just the next few years. So you already have, you know, one in three households living in apartments being families with children. But I think, you know, this is a really, really important topic for me because I think if we want to develop our city sustainably um, and through sort of livable density, then I think we need to think about how families can thrive in medium and high density housing. And a big part of this is actually play, comes down to play. Now, when you um, interview parents with children who decide to move out of this, out of more medium and high density housing to, to the traditional sort of low rise um, house in the backyard, a lot of it tends to be around the provision of play. So they want for their children to be able to have access to the backyard, where they can be inside doing their daily routines, cooking, doing their errands, whatever, and then the kids can be playing outside on their own safely. Unless we address how we can provide this within more medium and high density housing, then I think this the, the vision for a more compact city really starts to, um, to, to topple over. Um, and a lot of cities are grappling with this at the moment. So cities such as London, um, they've implemented policy that uh, means that every new multi-unit residential development has to provide playable space within the development itself. So this means providing really a, a cue for children to, to play in communal areas, in shared communal areas, so it might be things like, like a, a playable element, um, having grassed areas that are welcoming for children to play. But apart from the design element, it's also the, the regulation element. So making sure that you know, body corporate rules can't prevent children from playing in communal areas and making sure that, that children are welcome to play in, this area, in these areas. So it's really the shift of how do we provide really um, sort of great play opportunities for children that are living in these areas rather than just assuming that the choice has been made that they're living in small houses and so they won't have access to play space. Sort of flipping that conversation saying it's the right of every child to have access to play space and how do we shift policy to make sure that, that developers are responsible for, for creating those opportunities for kids. So I think policy is a big part of this. Yeah, and it's not something we touch on being the advocates of like, oh, let's get boots on the ground, let's take action, let's activate these neighbourhoods. But policy is so integral because if we flash over the pond and look at Sydney, they don't have the policy around that, as, as I learnt in your report. 
Absolutely. There's, you know, a couple of global exam examples um, that, that do take this topic very seriously. And I think, um, you know, Australia is really behind um, mm. and we need to start taking it a lot more seriously than what we are at the moment. I mean, the reality is that, you know, pr that play, outdoor play um, should happen every day for kids. Um, and I think it's the responsibility of, of designers, of planners, of, um, you know, policymakers to, to make that a priority um, so that every child has, has direct access to, to play every day. Play every day motto mm. that drives us forward. Um, an observation I've made, and it might be just completely wrong, but I love your insight, is that when I go and work with inner city um, childcare centres in designing playgrounds and um, getting feedback from the staff about where they're children that attend the centre are playing, um, I'm finding that the inner city um, centres, I'm getting the feedback that children are outside a lot because they're like accessing parklands and the types of activities they're engaging with. I'm seeing that there seems to be more nature-based engagement in those inner cities than there is in the outer suburbs. Is that what any findings of that in your work? I mean, that's a really good point. Um, I think, yeah, often because of the pressure um, that government ha governments have, local governments have in these areas, they tend to be a little bit more progressive and push mm. these things a little bit further than the suburbs. I think in, in you know, the, the lower density suburbs, there's still the assumption that children, when if you have a backyard, children will be playing outdoors. Um, and of course, we know that that's not true. Um, in fact, we know that majority of children don't undertake the recommended amount of physical activity that they need every day uh, to develop, you know, in a healthy way. We know that the obesity rates of kids in Australia are really, really concerning. So there's a lot of reasons why, um, you know, just because you have a backyard doesn't necessarily mean that kids are outdoor, outside playing. Um, and in fact, these sort of more innovative ways of engaging with kids through nature play programming might in many ways be, um, be more beneficial to children. Um, I think this comes back to the question of, you know, design isn't always the solution. So just because you provide a space outdoors for play doesn't necessarily mean that children will play. It also comes down to the culture um, of, of play spaces. And I think in Australia, we still very much have this sort of obsession with, with that play spaces equals physical infrastructure, rather than thinking of it as more, it's actually a much more holistic understanding of yeah of programming alongside policy, alongside physical infrastructure. So, um, you know, one of the things that, that you mentioned at the beginning of the intro was the idea of play workers um, mm. or play rangers, so it's called. Um, and I think that's, that's, you know, a really brilliant idea. Basically, the idea of a play ranger, um, it's recognising that children are playing a lot less outdoors and the reason for that isn't necessarily because there's not enough play space, but it's because of sort of societal changes. So parents um, are more fearful of strangers. They might know their neighbours a lot um, less than they did uh, in previous generations. So there's less trust. There's also the issue of, you know, parents being fearful of judgment from other parents or being judged as being bad parents if they allow children to be playing outside um, independently. And so this idea of a play ranger came about. Um, it's quite common in Japan, um, where in Tokyo, where I visited, most uh, neighbourhood um, green spaces will have play rangers implemented in these spaces during certain times of the day, mostly in the afternoons, after school, and at least three times a week. And the idea of a play ranger is to really stimulate play opportunities for children and to provide that safe environment that parents can then feel confident that they can let their child go out to the park after school. There's a, there's a play ranger there looking up, out for the general safety of the kids, making sure that the kids are having fun, they're being, um, you know, they're, they're being um, playful with one another. And it's really addressing some of these social barriers that we're seeing more and more around play. I think this is a really, really clever way of addressing it. So rather than just suggesting that we need, you know, 
more expensive play spaces, better play spaces, it's saying, well, actually, you know, kids, based on your, your question at the beginning, you know, kids, um, I'm sure most of you remember, as a child, you don't actually need that much to play. But what you do need is a safe environment. You do need other children to play with. Otherwise, you know, it's not fun for anyone. Um, and, and you do need to feel like, like you have some, a certain sense of ownership of the space. So that's really the intention of the play ranges. I think it's a really uh, clever way of, of promoting more, more play opportunities for children. I think this would work really well also within suburbs just as much as it would in, in high density areas. I love it. And how do we move beyond that culture? Because what I see time and time again, we see a development go up, they get some type of firm involved and they build this huge, big multi-million dollar structure and it's got climbing and it's got a slide and this is all infrastructure like this big fancy park, if you will. But it just feeds into that con- that, um, the narrative that play is a destination. It's something you go and do and it's like an event and it's about entertainment when instead of the process of plays all the time and it needs to be accessible, how do we move beyond play being represented as a entertainment theme park almost to something that's integral for just a child to have ownership over, to have playability and social connectedness? I think this is a very hard question. I think um, that's know, why we get you because you're the expert. <laughs> I don't have the answer. I'm like, who, who might be able to answer? This? It is. It's a really hard question. I think you know, designers want to um, want to design something that will get them into a beautiful, flashy magazine, and so you, you do start seeing this strange sort of competition also in councils where you see these multi-million dollar, as I said, destination play spaces that um, are more and more sort of larger and more intricate. And I often, you know, see see them as almost these being the, the mega shopping centres of playgrounds. You know, you have this huge regional play space, which is surrounded by car parking, where everyone will flock to on the weekends. But what we're not thinking about with play spaces is, is not just these big large uh, shopping centre type spaces, but those small local community run um, shops almost that, that you need in order to create that diversity and that richness in our community. I think that's what's lacking. So I certainly have no problem with, with, with large uh, multi-million dollar play spaces. I think they're great. But in order to complete that diverse palette of play experiences for children, we also need to provide a lot more diversity in terms of, of, of play opportunities for kids. So in my opinion, um, every uh, neighbourhood should have a child-friendly design policy, which then sets out how they are accomplishing a diversity of play spaces in their neighbourhood. So it has sort of a network of, of diverse play opportunities, which are then interconnected with walkable routes um, to encourage children to be actively uh, mobile. So I think as soon as a neighbourhood would, would map out the, the, the play spaces, they would start understanding what the gaps might be in providing that diversity. And I think engagement here is also really, really critical. So actually speaking to the communities to understand what barriers might be which are not allowing children to be active and playful at the moment. Um, and there's a, there's a social shift that needs to come with that. Um, one of the things I really loved from Antwerp in Belgium, um, every year they run a play day uh, through the entire community. Um, and on that day, children are not allowed to receive any homework from, from their school. Um, all of the children channel, children's channels are switched off. So they're sort of blanked out on, on the TV screens. Um, so children know that on this day, they have to be outside, they have to be playing. There's a lot of activities that the communities run during this day, during the shutdown during this day. And it's all about normalising the culture around play again. So it's about the um, the local um, council or the local neighbourhood saying, 
we prioritise play. We think that this is of extreme value to our community. And so we want to make, celebrate this. We want to celebrate play. We want to give opportunities for children to get to know one another in their neighbourhood um, and, and create sort of this opportunity for, for a day to be celebrated around this. I think that's a really simple way to, to start talking to, to parents, to start talking to kids about what sort of play spaces they would want and then to on, on top of that, sort of to create this, this holistic policy around, um, around child-friendly design of neighbourhoods to, to then implement that at a higher level um, and create that, that richness and diversity. Yeah, that's a common theme I observe through your report is these communities have created a culture of respecting the childhood experience overall and mm. over, seeing past the mess, seeing past the noise. Um, of some of the images that you've got in the report, like a playground right next to an apartment block windows, I'll be like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to, like so many developments here, there'll be the developer going, no way that's happening, I've got to sell the apartment, what's, what's right, right there. Um, so you touched on it briefly in your last answer, but do you have any strategies for the everyday parent or educator to start creating that culture of valuing the childhood experience in play in their neighbourhoods? Mm. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's um, tricky. I think, ironically, adults want their children to be fearless, mm. but there's sort of their own um, fearfulness of the potential dangers and negative outcomes will often interfere with allowing children to engage in these sort of healthy and challenging um, play, play types to, to build their courage and resilience. So it's this really strange dynamic. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to understanding, um, you know, not just the risks associated with play, but also the risks associated with not playing. Um, so it's a really big um, transition I think that we have to make in terms of the language that we use around play um, so not necessarily calling it risky play but calling it adventurous play or self-directed play sort of you know the, the terminology that rather than trying to provoke a sense of fear it's actually provoking a sense of, of joy and and memory to, to, what, to what we did uh, as kids um, I think you know more and more we're starting to talk about it I think um, there's there's, there's more knowledge around it um, and, and hopefully things will shift um, in a way to, to promote this. You mentioned risk versus risk and since you're a practising architect consulting with schools and um, childcare centres, how do you overcome that perception if you're designing in risk or highlighting it? How's, what's your strategy to overcome people that might have that barrier? I think um, once again, it's sort of reframing the conversation a little bit. We're certainly not trying to create more risky um, outcomes for, for children. We're yeah. just trying to, to provide more, um, more diversity and opportunities for children to engage in more self-directed play. That, also that often comes with the perception that it's more risky. But I think um, there's been some really interesting studies from RMIT University looking at the implementation of loose play parts within schools. And of course, you're very well aware of, of loose play parts. I know you're a big sort of advocate for it. Um, but what they found in their research is that children that engage in sort of more self-directed play with, more, with, with loose parts were a lot more physically active. They tended to enjoy their time more. But also surprisingly, what they found is that it led to less injuries and accidents during school time um, or during recess time because of the fact that children were less bored, they were more engaged, and so they were less likely to be playing on something that wasn't intended for play. So by providing these sorts of um, more self-directed play opportunities with recycled materials, a loose parts, um, that's sort of uh, more chaotic. It sort of it looks more chaotic, but it certainly doesn't mean that it's more dangerous. And and in many cases, it creates less danger because the children start to take ownership over their environment. They start to create their own challenges. And kids are actually really good at this. They they know when to push themselves and when not to push themselves. And so by providing this 
opportunity for loose play, for nature play, for just a, a more an environment that allows for reconfiguration, restructuring, moving around. All of this, um, I think, actually creates a safer, more engaging environment, and in the long term, is much better for the health and well-being of kids. So I think we need to just yeah. shift our understanding of you know static play spaces yeah. versus more imaginative ones. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the trickle-on effect equally. It's not just about that play and that play scenario and the benefit remaining within whatever your nature play zone or your loose part zone. It's those experiences and learnings that push on into their life and day-to-day operating. Um, evidence of this is um, Barambar East Primary School here in Brisbane. They implemented loose parts a year ago um, during COVID challenges um, for at, um, for children that needed to go to school at those times. And what happened was they had a 70% drop in violent incidents within one year wow. due to the collaboration that was wow. happening and due to the functional literacy availability um, in the collaboration that then trickled onto instead of having a reaction in a physical way, they were able to respond in a more beneficial way that then trickled into the classroom and then the parents saw this and now the parents are on board with it to see, okay, well, if this is what's happening, how far can we go with it? And it's an amazing (laughs) shift. Um, So it just doesn't, like you said, it's not just this static experience. It's not the destination of climb here and slide here that the child's not going to take away and take it home. Um, Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal, and there's more and more data coming out of that school at the moment that's yeah. just blown it away. In t- attendance, um, I think it's increased around thirty. They've had a thirty percent increase in attendance to yeah. school, and where incidence is zero in the loose part zone and multiples on the built structures in the school. Wow. Um, yeah, I think, you know, as adults, we really need to let go of control a little bit here mm. and understand that by letting go of control, we're actually creating a safer environment and a much more engaging environment that yep. in return will create less risk for kids. Um, 100%. For their health and well-being, you know, we, we need to, I think, talk about it more um, and be a lot more educated about it. Yeah, I'm delving deep on that topic at the moment because I'm putting together a talk on creating courageous culture um, Mm -hmm. instead of one of supervision because I get called frequently saying, oh, can you come and do risk and play training with I've got a problem with supervision? And I was just like, there's some something in this that seems to be a mismatch because there would be an incident would happen, a child would get hurt and then, the managing the directors or the teachers would say, or the principal, education department would be like, why weren't you supervising? And the educators, black and blue in the face, saying, I, I, was, I was supervising, I was supervising, I was right there, and it still happened. So I kind of made some observations, and by being right on top of the child and just our supervision is manifested into just directing, don't do that, be careful, don't do this, don't do that. And then the outcome is we've, we've stripped agency away from the child. We've stripped decision-making away from the child. So, of course, the moment we glance away, an incident happens because we're not there to confirm the correct behaviour. Instead of having a collaborative approach and giving the children the information they need to make an informed decision for themselves and encourage them to be courageous and convey to their parents when an incident does happen about this opportunity for to develop courage and um, adventure and adventurous play, as you mentioned, or free play and freedom. And mm. then it's a learning opportunity to pass it on to the parents as well. So um, any research you know on that, send it my way. I'm going down many a rabbit hole at the moment. <laughs> amazing. Such a great topic. Yeah. Um, also an amazing like aha moment reading your research here was it's, it takes a very like of a whole neighbourhood, a macro approach. Like it's a broad look at these neighbourhoods and high density being apartment block areas. But 
the similarities between how I design play environments are just so they're just you just take it down to the macro level and you need to create the same things or off not create them sorry um, to design them in for the children to have ownership over Absolutely. like the fact that there's like access to nature is an outcome social connectedness active mobility agency decision making okay. and sense of ownership are all there from a neighborhood standpoint I actually took your report to a training I did on the weekend and saying, these are the same things you need to create in your play environment. And mm. let's create environments, not present resources. That's my, mm. <laughs> that's what we got. Our default is that at the moment. We present resources and go, here you go. I said, just, we need to create the environments for the children to explore and have ownership over. Stop presenting yes. stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. You're right. The macro and the micro is sort of um, very, very, very much aligned in terms of the, the principles. Um, but I, I often think that the, the urban design of cities is something that's just been so forgotten in terms of the, the, the experiences of children. Um, and that's why I'm just, you know, passionate about reinvigorating these conversations around how we just plan for our urban design in our cities, how we implement these needs into the, the policies so that then it's easier for the designer at the end that, that designs the actual play space because the infrastructure and the planning and the policy has been also implemented yep. the same principles. So it's sort of just a much more holistic approach. And it can happen from the other end as well, as I observed in the report um, the story, I think it was Vancouver, of the community saying, no, you're not rezoning. You're not building a road yeah. through this area. I think that your reference there was rights, et cetera, in that, yeah. in that area. And it was a community that stuck their flag in the ground and said, no, we're prioritising children. Can you give us an overview of, because I just massacred what happened, <laughs> my no, summary absolutely. of that. So in Vancouver, basically um, what happened in, I believe it was the 1970s, they um, – the, the, the city proposed a large highway to be built from the suburban areas that were very, very rapidly develop, developing into the inner city areas. Um, and at the time, the, luckily, you know, there was a lot of protests around it. And the people said, well, you're actually, you know, destroying communities, inner city communities by providing these highways in a very unsustainable way of building. So why don't we, instead of thinking about... Um, you know, getting families from the suburbs into the cities where there's infrastructure, why don't we start thinking about how we can design medium density, family-friendly housing? And so they were the first really in the world that came up with a design policy for family-friendly high-density housing. And there's some you know, really, really beautiful um, illustrations and diagrams about what it might mean to create a child-friendly neighbourhood. And to this day, um, developers, architects, planners, they have to use this policy when they're designing multi-unit residential development. So it's something that's stuck for a really long time. And it's completely transformed the way in which Vancouver um, has been designed. So the priority has all of a sudden shifted from the, the design of CBDs, which are for business um, and for the, the singles or the empty nesters, and instead starting to think about cities in a much more child-friendly, family-friendly sort of way by suggesting that families want to be close to infrastructure, want to be close to, to, to cities and all of that they can provide. So why don't we start thinking about um, housing in a much different way? And you know, some of the things that they implement will range from the, the scale of the apartment, so making sure that, for example, there's space for a pram um, inside an apartment, or there you can comfortably um, bathe a child in a small bathroom, or that there's enough space for a bunk bed in, in, a, in a small bedroom. So it sort of comes down from that smaller scale all the way through to the way in which we, we design the actual complex they're making sure that there is storage provisions for things such as scooters or bikes and all of the other large toys that come, come with having children, making sure that there's passive surveillance of, of outdoor play spaces so that a, a parent can be cooking in the kitchen and look directly outside and see the child playing outside. 
making sure you know that there's bike parking and pram parking in communal areas and making sure that there's um, those indoor communal spaces also where, where children and their families can play. It's also about integrating daycare and childcare within, um, within multi-unit residential developments, but it's really easy for a parent to be able to drop off their kids downstairs in the daycare and then go back up to their apartment to work from home or travel into the city to, to work. So understanding how families with children live and how we can enhance that for them um, within our neighbourhoods. I think this is, you know, really critical. Um, and Australia is really far behind in terms of our, our thinking around this. So we certainly have a lot of catching up to do. Yeah. Yeah, we do. But it's people like you doing the work every day, implementing it, honouring the design, considering the end user instead of the end outcome. Mm. And I think as a culture, we need to, like, going to Finland and seeing the level of design and consideration in design right across the board for everything. It's like you, like going into a chemist and I had an umbrella and a coat and they send you to the desk and there's an umbrella tube that you slide your umbrella in at the desk and there's a hook attached to the desk for your jacket and it's that level of consideration that creates the behaviour something I go to all the time, our environments create behaviour. And in my very novice approach, I see it time and time again in your report. It's like the environment that has been used as a platform to build on has created the behaviour that then in turn creates that community and culture around it. Then it's that self-perpetuating, self-feeding entity. It's kind of like this synergistic relationship or the ecology that's the word I was looking for, the ecology of the design being the platform for everything else to happen on top. Um, we've yeah, talked a lot absolutely. about the child as the beneficiary here, but what did you see for the parents and caregivers um, and out, the benefit to them from their children being engaged in playful environments? Mm. One of the um, interventions that I really loved was in uh, Japan also. Um, they have these things called parent salons, which are located within um, every sort of shopping strip in a neighbourhood. The parent salon is basically a shop front um, with the provision of, of indoor um, space for play. There's also a microwave, a space to make tea or coffee, heat up some food for, for a you know, young children, um, and there's also a counsellor and a play worker that comes in um, every every day to to check up on parents if they have any any questions, and it creates this um, you know this support network um, for for parents, and it also creates um, a really great platform for educating uh, parents about the opportunities for play in the neighbourhood. So the parent salons are run by the same people that will run the play ranges in the parks and also the adventure play spaces in the local community too. So it's sort of one uh, shop stop where a parent can find all of the needs that they might need for within that neighbourhood for, for their child. It creates a community where local parents can get to know one another. So, you know, this is very similar to um, in Australia, of course, we've got play groups for, for young parents. It's a very similar concept to this but it's about providing a fixed piece of infrastructure where these playgroups belong and where as a parent you know that you can go to the same place every day, connect with the same people, connect with um, play workers or, or counsellors to, to really come up with any um, challenges that you might be having as a parent. So it's that providing that, that network um, for, for parents, which is so valuable um, and really incredible investment, I think, for councils to be able to create. Yeah. And what did that journey look like for, um, it's in Tokyo, as I recall. Um, mm -hmm. What did that journey look like to go from non-play workers, non-family cafes, canteens? What was it called? Uh, play, uh, salons, parent salons, salons. Parent salons. What, what was a precursor to that? Um, I think in, you know, in Japan they have a really, um, a really developed, I suppose, understanding of the benefits of play. Um, I think it comes from, you know, an understanding of, of, of um, 
of how play can influence the development of children. But I think it also comes from um, this sort of efficiency in a way. Um, you know, they understand that parents will need to go to work, uh, they need to be traveling to and from work. And so during that time, ideally this, the city can, can make sure that children have diverse play opportunities available to them. So it's this sort of both the culture of the benefits of play, but also the efficiency of providing spaces for play for kids, which form this, this really strong uh, network for, um, for parents. And you know, it's really, really beneficial, I think, for parents. Apart from um, providing these parent salons, they also create or they also provide um, adventure play spaces. Or they call them play yards. Um, so these are spaces where children can be free and messy in an environment. There are a couple of um, similar interventions in Melbourne. Um, there's three or four adventure play uh, staffed adventure play yards in in Melbourne. Um, nowhere else in Australia has anything like it. But it's a really incredible facility. They're, they're run by play workers. They act as a backyard for for families. Um, that don't have their own backyard. So it's a space where a child can come in every day, be really messy. They can have a project, an ongoing project, with a lot of recycled materials um, available in the, in the play yard. There's usually a shed with tools, um, craft equipment, um, and it provides a great opportunity for kids to go there every day after school. They're run by councils, so they're entirely free for all children to attend. And it also provides that support network for parents. Also. So it's a great space, um, not just for children, but as sort of a family hub where parents can come, get, come together, can meet one another uh, in this safe environment and allow kids to, to take risks in that very, very safe um, environment um, and intended as a very messy space. So slightly uncomfortable for some, uh, but a lot of richness and joy comes out of these spaces. Yeah, and it's nice to see Australia adapting to overcoming the stigma of playing with junk as well, yeah. which has been a been a thing that we've been when we're implementing loose parts in schools or doing pop up play. Parents coming and go, I thought there was going to be a playground, a pop up playground, and but once they yeah. once they see it, I've had one teacher go, Oh, this is what I want to do in the classroom, but can't, and I was like, Perfect, you get it now within that loose parts realm. Um, Absolutely. Once once you see it, then you understand the, the joy and, and richness that comes from it, which is why I think these sort of pilot programs are so important. I think it would be amazing if you know, either in Queensland or New South Wales we could set up a pilot project for an adventure play space. I'm working on it. We're working that. on it. Yes. We're working on it. I'm oh. getting there slowly but surely. Um, and My fingers are crossed. Just using that play ranger um model, I think that could be a little step in the right direction of getting these communities used to something and then taking that leap. Because I think if it's mm. if it's not adapted, you take that leap too far. Like I've seen schools try to implement loose parts and they just go all in and the parents freak mm. out, staff freak out, and they end up pulling it all out because it's just too much of a stretch exactly. in the practice. Absolutely agree. I think we need to acknowledge that you know, things are not the same as they were in previous generations. Parents are more fearful, um, you know, and, and in many cases when it comes to more cars being on the streets, their concerns are yep. valid. And so we need to come up with a lot more innovative solutions to yep. overcome these rather than simply assuming that nothing's changed and we should just go back to how it was in yeah. the 1950s. Yep. That's, that's yep. not the way no, forward. Don't... Don't consider yeah. your feelings. I'm right. You're wrong. Um, change your habits. Um, that's not going to work. Yeah. And that's what I loved yeah. about having this um, passive supervision um, mm -hmm. within the play environments and accessibility. So you're honouring that child, that parent needing to scratch that security itch, <laughs> but mm -hmm. still the outcome is you've been strategic and given the child what they need equally as well. Exactly. So the outcome's the same, but yeah. the way of getting there was far more successful. It makes everyone a lot calmer. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's what makes it sustainable. Um, Definitely. A quote that I read in an article 
Um, it might be in the report or it might be one of the few articles and blogs I've read of yours. Um, a quote from Enrique Panoloza, I think that's how you say it. Yeah. Um, the pioneer urbanist from Bogota. And I love this. It sums, sums up things beautifully. Children are an indicator species. If we can design successful cities for children, we will have successful cities for everyone. How much does that contribute to what your purpose and mission is? Yeah, it's sort of fundamental, I think, to, to what I do. Um, the, the, um, the person that you referred to there, the former mayor of Bogota, his brother, Gil Penulosa, he started an organisation in Toronto called H80 Cities. Um, and in it, basically, he argues that the, the base for any city should be either an eight-year-old or an 80-year-old. If you can capture the needs of both of those, then you would have captured the majority of needs of everyone. And that's really um, saying that, you know, the, the, this is a more vulnerable type of, of resident that um, isn't able to drive, their mobility might be slightly more impeded. And so if we can provide a safe environment for them, an engaging environment for them, an environment where an eight-year-old child can be out of their doorstep on the, you know, on the front lawn of their space, of their of their home, um, on the sidewalk, can be playing safely, then chances are that it's also going to be great for the 80-year-old who's waiting for the bus stop there because you've created a sort of a benchmark for, for what a livable and safe environment might be. So I think this is absolutely critical, sort of saying, you know, if, if you get this right, then chances are that you would have created a very livable and a very joyful city also to live in. Um, so, yes, it's it's a critical thing. And I I wish that, you know, every developer um, and every planner, when they were um, submitting a new proposal for development or building, they would have to answer this question. You know, how have you created an environment where an eight-year-old child can thrive? If you've been able to do that, then I'm almost certain that you would have created an environment that's, you know, really livable for, for everyone. Yeah. So it's a critical piece. And the consideration at the beginning of the process, not having that consideration at the end. Because in my observation within design, it get, tends to get hijacked by the outcome a lot of the time. And then we feed in this narrative and create the narrative to suit the design opposed mm -hmm. to create the narrative and then the outcome will be the design. Exactly. And a lot of this also comes down to the way in which we engage with children in that sort of way. So often, you know, children are consulted at the very, very end of the process. And it becomes sort of this tick the box exercise, which I think is very, you know, almost disrespectful to the child, um, knowing how much children can actually contribute meaningfully the design and planning of our cities um, it's so strange that we will only ever engage with kids at the very end where they get to you know choose the color of the playground or the theme that the playground might be rather than actually having agency to sit at the table at the beginning of the decisions to decide where the playgrounds go how they're going to be designed how are they going to get there it's you know incredibly powerful and i think we forget um, just how um just how children are you know, so knowledgeable and, and perceptive around yeah. these topics. I mean, right before COVID, um, I ran a workshop in Kabucha alongside Nature Play Australia. And in it, we sort of asked kids um, these topics around what it is that they, that they love or they hate about their spaces. And their answers were just so sophisticated. They spoke a lot about um, people with disabilities and how they would create environments where um, which were more inclusive um, for people. They spoke a lot about how, um, you know, seeing rubbish on the streets really bothers them, how they would put more rubbish uh, bins on the streets. They spoke about how they're really concerned about nature and how they would love to see more uh, sort of mini sanctuaries for, for nature within the cities. You know, these are topics which are extremely sophisticated. They certainly weren't saying things like, 
you know, would love to have an elephant-themed uh, play space. Mm. They, they were really touching on some very serious issues and they knew how to do that very eloquently. So I think we need to respect the voice of children and take them on that journey right from the very beginning. Um, and once again, I think this should be embedded in policy. So it's not just something that someone does that happens to be passionate about the topic, but it's actually a requirement for, for every new development to have to engage with children right from the beginning and to get that voice into, into, into planning. Yep. Our big mission at the Australian Institute of Play is to have a children's charter and have that implemented like the like as you would in Scotland across the board. Mm -hmm. So it has to be considered across all policy. And that's our mm -hmm. big, hairy, audacious goal. <laughs> Um, I love it. I'm very supportive of yeah, your goal. You're a teammate. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know, the irony of this, the children have fostered this knowledge and wisdom around caring for nature and caring for the environment through picking up rubbish. It's actually their teachers and carers and educators and families have actually created that learning for a lot of them. They're taught it in schools, but where we fail as adults is in the pr the practical application. <laughs> and the children see it so simply and say, well, you say care for the environment, put more bins in so people can put rubbish away. You say care for the environment, let me go into it a bit more. And so they're like the implementers. And what I wrote a note just here was what came to mind from that 80, 8 to 80 is like you're pairing up that knowledge with that reflection and then the outcome is that wisdom. So That's a beautiful way of putting it. Definitely. I, I love that. It's, it's, you're, you're right. We, you know, we teach kids about all of these, um, around all of these things about caring for nature and the environment, and yet we don't give them the opportunity to be able to have ownership yep. of it also to, as you said, to be able to go out into the, into the nature play within it, but also to really own it, to create a space for themselves where they can feel like they really belong to a natural environment, where they can care for animals, where they can care for plants. Um, there's so much more that we can do in that way. And I think it all starts with, with listening a little bit more to, to kids. 100%. 100%. Getting out of the way. Um, <laughs> what excites you most about where what opportunities we have in front of us in Australia? I think it excites me that more and more people are um, talking about it. I think you know, there's, there's so many amazing organisations out there, such as Nature Play Australia, that really promote these values. Um, and I think they're gaining more and more interest, which is, which is really exciting. I think Australians are um, a very adventurous bunch of people. Um, so I think it's only a matter of time that we start really embracing this idea of outdoor adventurous play. I think it's really so much part of our, of our um, history. I think also if you think about Indigenous Australia and how much we have to learn from the way in which they educated their children through a very play-based and nature-based environment. We have so much history around that that we can learn from. And that to me is really exciting so to be able to, to use all of this knowledge and the wisdom that we have um, in our culture, in Indigenous history of this country, um, and, and use that to, to create a much more exciting, more joyful environment so that in the end, you know, we create the next generation of citizens that are ready to tackle the problems um, that we know are going to be you know, challenging problems um, to come in our world. So it's you know, our responsibility to, to allow for that to happen in, in a meaningful and um, effective way. Beautifully, beautifully said. On that note, I cannot improve on that statement. It's about taking responsibility. It's about honouring our history and just working with what we've got, honouring that child, and we will be good. Um, yes, exactly. Thank you so much for joining us today on Play It Forward. It's been such an informative chat. Um, I love the work you do. Everything we've chatted about today we'll put in the show notes and links to your work and breakdown and blogs. It's been fantastic. Any messages for thank our you. listeners? 
Oh, well, thank you for having me. I think, you know, and congratulations also to you to, for, for this podcast and, and for leading the conversations that need to happen. I think, um, you know, everyone should um, think a little bit more about how they can embed play in their daily lives, whether you're a child or an adult. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of ways to, to create a more playful and joyful um, life. 100%. Thank you so much. And I look forward to you joining us at the Australian Institute of Play Childhood Summit towards the end of the year. It's exciting. Really, really looking forward to it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. I hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. If you want to find out more about the Cities for Play, head to citiesforplay.com and all the references are in our show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to you joining us again soon on a Play It Forward Worthy podcast.